0: Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to all of you from Hitendra. I am so honored and delighted that at today's intersection, we have someone who truly represents the ethos of this program. In other words, this uh, aspiration we have to create these intersections, these powerful points of confluence between what otherwise may have been very disparate pursuits and pathways in life and in leadership. We have as a guest today, Dr. Richard Davidson, and I want to spend just a minute introducing the significance of this opportunity we have with our guest before bringing him into our fold for a conversation with all of us. So a warm welcome to all of you. So about our guest, Dr. Richard Davidson, or as he's popularly known as is Richie, is a pioneer in studying the psychology of emotions from the vantage point of the physiology of the brain. He is the founder as well of the Center for Healthy Minds. He is a professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, which has been his platform through which a lot of the science has been done over the last several decades. Uh, Time magazine named Richie as one of the 100 most influential people in the world to acknowledge the very path-breaking way he has pushed the boundaries of science in some really powerful directions. He is also a friend and confidant of a very storied figure, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who himself has, from, in a sense, the other direction, the direction of spirituality, really pushed the boundaries to create certain very innovative collaboration platforms with science. Richie is the author of two really powerful books that give us a kind of popular science understanding of all this path-breaking research. One is on the emotional life of the brain... And the other is on the latest findings in meditation with um, his colleague, Daniel Goleman. In addition, he has also sought to really translate the science into practical impact for the world. And we're going to be talking today not just about the science, but also about this power of this practice in real life through the Healthy Minds Institute and a few offerings they have from there, including this app. That all of you, I think, will be delighted to be able to access. And so on that note, let me at this point invite in our midst Dr. Davidson. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Very grateful. Dr. Davidson, you know, or or Richie, if you know I have the permission to call you that. Um, Of
1: course, please.
0: Yeah. My 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 maybe first question for you is how did you get started on this work? One thing really unique about you is that you're not just doing the outer work of a scientist, you're also doing the inner work of a truth seeker. In other words, from everything I know about you, you have pursued this path of, you know, for example, mindfulness and meditation in your own life as well. Did that interest come first, and then you started to do the science, or did the science come first, and then you got drawn to doing the inner work?
1: well, it's uh, it's they really co-emerged, and I uh, very much appreciate you asking that question. I uh, had the benefit early on in my career to have met a number of people who uh, had meditation and spiritual practice as an important part of their life. and through their demeanor, they really impressed me. They were warm-hearted people. They were the kind of people I wanted to be more around. And uh, their uh, warm-heartedness was infectious. I wanted to learn more of what their secret sauce was, so to speak. And at the same time, I uh, my scientific career began with a really simple question. And that question still is, a vibrant one uh, in our work today. And the question is, why is it that some people are more vulnerable to life's slings and arrows and others more resilient? And how can we nurture the qualities in a person to uh, promote optimal flourishing. And in the early part of my career, I, I focused mostly on the adversity side of the equation. Uh, but then when I first met His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 1992, that all changed.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I have to share a personal story. I, When I was uh, thinking about what to major on in college, I had two loves. One was psychology and one was math and um i ended up pursuing math and the reason i i know i love math and you know you know that was a good path for me and at the same time the reason at that point i didn't pursue psychology was kind of like what you were just sharing which is that at that stage, you know, in the evolution of the discipline, there was, um, you know, much less of this richness available that you and other pioneers in the last 20, 30 years have really built, you know, for us, which is uh, so much of a focus on the science of human flourishing, you know, of, you know what it takes to be in the more positive side. And if today I was, you know, making that same call and the same choice, I think I would have pivoted much more towards psychology because of all, all, all this fruitful and beautiful work that you're doing.
1: Well, um, and, and in the early stage of my career, it was very lonely and, uh, and difficult in many ways because there was uh, not a particularly receptive attitude in the academy and in uh, psychology and neuroscience in particular, toward this kind of work, it was really regarded as fringe, uh, even beyond fringe. Uh, and so for many years, my senior colleagues encouraged me to pursue something more mainstream.
0: Yeah. Where is the field now? Do you do you feel like uh, it's taken a turn so that it's uh, much more, you know, well embraced? Or is it still a uh Swim that you're doing upstream.
1: Uh, it's it's definitely changed significantly. Uh, if you look at the uh, rate of scientific publications in meditation in serious scientific journals, there's an inflection point around 2004 or 2005. Uh, and the rate of publication increases quite dramatically. There is now uh, federal funding from the National Institutes of Health for this kind of research. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there really wasn't. When I first began, it was really uh, extremely lonely. When I first started, there were three or four scientific papers in the area of meditation. Today, there are thousands. And one of the um, uh, wonderful uh, elements for me is uh, a kind of gratification to see how the field has really matured and become a, a real field of science uh, particularly over this last decade
0: I wanna, I want to stay on your personal journey for a couple more minutes and then come back and you know have you share more about this uh, beautiful revolution that you're um, you know helping shape in, in, in science there is a there's a quote from you that I read in a um, ABC uh, you know news item which says that um, you know every morning you do a period of meditation and then you scan your calendar for about two three minutes and then for a few seconds you then pause to reflect on how you can bring the right stuff to each meeting in order to be really present and most uh, most helpful. I found that to be really a powerful idea, you know, as a way to give, you know, a boost to the day, to the start of your day. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, that practice and what it has
1: meant for you? Uh, absolutely. Yes, I did it this morning. I, um, I meditate every morning. It is something I've been doing for more than 40 years. And uh, over the last maybe 15 years, I have developed a, a habit on, on work days of taking out my calendar right after I meditate and just very quickly scanning the meetings and uh, activities that I have scheduled for that day. And I spend uh, a few moments reflecting on the people I will meet, uh, the people I will interact with, and how I could be most helpful, uh, show up in the most beneficial way for each of these encounters. And it doesn't take a lot of time. Usually, uh, it's not more than 90 seconds or two minutes, uh, and it helps me, I think, um, really adopt the uh, most beneficial mindset for maximizing the opportunities um, that uh, we have together each day. And so I've talked about that, that simple practice, and uh, uh, I, my aspiration is that this could be helpful to others.
0: Especially at a time like this when um, the world is going a little bit topsy-turvy, you know, we had one crisis and then we have just been hit upon with yet one more. We had, um, you know, anxiety and depression on the rise. And now there's also a hurt and dismay and anger, you know, in some of the more recent developments. In that, in that context, um, some of these practices that you have uh, studied, that you have inculcated in yourself, what would be some, some tools in addition to the one that you so beautifully have just shared? which could be of value, you know, to our community. I I noticed on one of your websites, you you said that um, well-being is a skill. In other words, uh, not necessarily just a um, quality that some people have and others don't. So I'm intrigued about that. And tell us what might be some practical advice that we can offer our, our audience here.
1: Sure. So uh, happy to do that. Before I get to the practical advice, let me just amplify a little bit this uh, conclusion, if you will, that well-being is a skill. This is something that is central to both our science as well as our more activist dissemination, if you will. Uh, But we've been led to this conclusion through our science. Uh, And that is that well-being is comprised of some specific more elementary skills or pillars, uh, components, we might say. Uh, And we know from scientific research that each of these components or pillars can be cultivated, it can be strengthened. There are specific brain circuits that are associated with these. And we know that those brain circuits exhibit plasticity they can change in response to experience and can change in response to training. Uh, And so we view well-being as fundamentally not different than learning to play the violin or learning to engage in a complex sport. It requires practice. Uh, And so this is an insight that really comes from so this comes from a a related insight in neuroscience uh, that there are two fundamentally different kinds of learning one we call declarative learning and another we call procedural learning declarative learning is learning about things we can learn the value of well-being we can learn the value of mindfulness or kindness and understand its utility, but that won't necessarily make us a more mindful or a more kind person. Uh, In order to really develop these skills in an embodied way requires practice and requires also the second form of learning that we call procedural learning. Procedural learning is skill-based, it's embodied, and it is acquired through practice, and it is instantiated in totally different brain circuits. And in order to produce real change, we need both. We need declarative learning and procedural learning. So that is uh, a little bit of a backdrop. But one of the you asked for some practical tools. If you
0: don't mind, before you get into that, can I just uh, you know please. to make one sort of you know uh extension of what you just said it is so powerful you know, i think that you know this message that you're delivering that when you break these you know skills into small steps and you you practice them then over time the brain's plasticity just takes you to a beautiful place you know part of my work is in leadership you know beyond you know beyond the focus on life and um you know I, I find that the same idea that you just offered is so critical for us to embrace in developing leadership skills as well not to see people as natural bond leaders or not, and not to see ourselves just as entrapped, you know, or empowered by whatever our temperament is, but to recognize that there is, uh, you know, the discipline that you brought up that could be used as a way to humbly, <laughs> at whatever stage of life you're at and whatever leadership position you're at, take on a goal and really sort of like, you know, kind of approach it, you know, in, in, in that disciplined way.
1: Uh, so- absolutely. I completely agree and uh, very much see leadership also in the same way that leadership is uh, something that can be cultivated uh, and that there are more underlying or elementary constituents that we can identify that comprise effective leadership and, um, uh, and that can actually be cultivated. So one of yeah. the uh, things that I often remind people is that when human beings first evolved on this planet, none of us were brushing our teeth. And yet today, I think most people would agree that most people on the planet um, brush their teeth. And this is not part of our genome. This is actually a learned behavior. And we do this because we recognize that this is important for our personal physical hygiene. What we're talking about now is something important for our personal mental hygiene. And I think most viewers, uh, particularly who are here, would agree that our minds are even more important than our teeth. Uh, And my conjecture, uh, which is based on a lot of scientific evidence and also personal experience, that if we spent even as short a time as we do brushing our teeth each day, nourishing our mind in positive ways, this world would be a different place.
0: That's beautiful. I am going to quote you, actually, where you said something. You said, I envision a day when mental exercise will be as much a part of our daily lives as physical exercise. And like you said, personal hygiene. So powerful. So let's go for it. Let's uh, get some guidance from you on some practical tools that uh, especially at a time so charged and challenged like this, uh, we can all embrace.
1: Well, one of the uh, important elements, particularly in a situation, the likes of which we're all in today in this pandemic and also here in the US with uh, the divisiveness of uh, inequality that has been so raw, rawly exposed. There, When we reflect on the granularity of our daily lives, there's so much of activity that actually is quite positive. People are, on the whole, good to one another. The very act of physical distancing, which we're asked to do in this time of the pandemic, is beneficial not only for ourselves, but also to minimize the likelihood that we spread the virus. And so, It's an act of generosity. uh, When we pause and appreciate all of the individuals whose livelihoods we depend on, people who may deliver things to us, people who are on the front lines, um, medical providers, all of these individuals who help to make our lives function. Uh, particularly at this time, uh, when we reflect on all of the individuals it requires to put a meal on the table and think about that deeply, we recognize how interdependent we actually are. Uh, And so spending a few intentional minutes every day bringing into our minds and our hearts individuals whose actions are of some benefit to us and expressing our appreciation. Uh, And even Uh, formulating how we might express our thanks to them if we see them in the world. Nurturing that kind of warm-heartedness through uh, recognizing appreciation is something that is very accessible, and uh, it is so prevalent in our daily lives, but we tend to ignore it. We pass it by. Uh, We have a fleeting thought, and we don't um, savor it. Uh, And this is an invitation to spend a few intentional minutes and actually strengthen those qualities because they are so important. They are an elixir, which can really calm our minds and help us, particularly in this time. Yeah, very nice.
0: So I'm hearing, you know, a regular discipline of meditation in your case, intentionality, you know, that you create first thing in the morning for, you know, for the rest of the day, discipline or putting your mind more on what we can appreciate, you know, about the present moment and a sense of gratitude, you know, as well for all that others are doing as well. Uh, That is so beautiful. Did did you find that um, as you go over the course of the day in what I am sure is a, you know, stretch, demanding, busy career and life that um, you find it valuable to, you know, create create pauses, create moments. I remember the story about Gandhi, you know, for example, that uh, one of the people working very closely with him, you know, he shared, he said that um, sometimes, you know, in his busy life, he would finish a meeting and then he would ask me, you know, uh, what is the time? And then I would say something like 10.27. And he would say, When is my next meeting? And you say, 10.30. 30. You say, Okay, great. I have three minutes. And then he would just become still for those three minutes. So um, I realized, you know, this is that was Gandhi's path. But um, have you found any such kind of like uh, small little centering interventions or something during the day itself to be that mm-hmm. things that you've started or
1: practiced? Yes, absolutely. I think that's so important uh, to sprinkle the day. Um, with those kinds of really short periods of practice. For example, every meeting that is an important meeting in our center, we begin with a few minutes of practice. We often call it clearing the lens. Uh, and it's really about taking a few moments to settle, to calm our minds, to open our hearts, and to be uh, fully present for reengaging with what we're about to do. My experience is that taking these two or three minutes before important meetings is the return on that investment is multiplicative in terms of the quality and efficiency of the subsequent meeting. Uh, And so this is one way in which we've baked it into our work routine in our daily work life. Another period during the day where I find this is easy and enormously helpful, and it could be done with with one's family too, is around mealtime. I mean, all of us eat several times a day. And this is a great opportunity to reflect on appreciation and all of the people who have been Responsible in one way or another for you being able to eat this meal, and spending a few moments before eating uh, in that way, I think, can be enormously beneficial.
0: It is uh, kind of coincidental that you say that because um, you know I've been spending the last couple of months in uh, in lockdown in India, and um, you know, as you might be aware from your own travels in India, you know, one has the privilege here at times to have like. Um, you know, a staff who can help, uh, you know, uh, cook, you know, at times for you uh, in you know, at homes and offices and what have you. And uh, I just remember, I, I had this flash in me yesterday that, like, I am just so incredibly grateful for this, you know, beautiful food that is being cooked by this gentleman, you know, and um, I want to give him a hug. I want to give him a hug just to thank him for that very beautiful... You know craft or what it puts on on our tables every day so uh it's coincidental to me that you've said that and it's, it's going to spur me on to do to do exactly <laughs> that in the next one for so thank you, thank you for that. yeah so um you you used uh, some really powerful concepts there that, that people are intrigued about and so they're asking uh where can they read about it where can they get a little bit more insight about uh that capacity to learn and master uh you know well-being
1: The Center for Healthy Minds that I direct uh, has an extensive website with all of our publications freely available. And I would encourage you to go to our website. Uh, It's the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Also, in terms of practical tools, a number of years ago, I started a nonprofit company called Healthy Minds Innovations. And the mission of this nonprofit entity is to take the insights from our science and turn them into tools through which we can cultivate and measure well-being at scale. And one of the things that we've done is created this app uh, called the Healthy Minds Program. It is freely available thanks to the generosity of our donors and funders. And this encompasses this scientific framework for understanding the plasticity of well-being. And it includes four major pillars. The first we call awareness, which is where mindfulness would be. The second we call connection, which is about qualities that nurture healthy social relationships, qualities like appreciation, gratitude, kindness, compassion. The third pillar is insight. Insight is about self knowledge, and specifically knowledge of the narrative about ourselves that we carry, and how we can develop a healthier relationship to this narrative. And finally, the fourth pillar is purpose, identifying our true north. And most importantly, uh, how can we align more and more of our everyday behavior within our core sense of purpose. Uh, the app includes scientific information about each of these four pillars. It also includes specific practices through which you can cultivate each of these four pillars of well being. And the app finally includes uh, tools to measure your progress along the path. So you can get information about um, how uh, uh, these four pillars. Uh, are um, uh, are present the extent to which they are uh, strong qualities the extent to which it may um, be important to nurture those qualities uh, and you can see how they change over time.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. Um you know, that uh, framework that you mentioned is, is, uh, is powerful. You know, those four, four parts of that journey. Um, I got sparked about insights. I think maybe that's the part that relates best to this uh, next question You know, for me, which is um, in your own journey, both in doing the science and in pursuing, you know, this uh, inner kind of journey for yourself, um, what has, you know, what has been the most significant change that you've experienced for your own self?
1: Well, I've been doing this kind of work for quite a long time now, and uh, I first met the Dalai Lama in 1992, and uh, that was a major pivot point for me, because he challenged me in that first meeting and asked why I could not use the tools of modern science. Uh, which I was using to study qualities like depression and anxiety and stress. And he asked, why can't you use those same qualities to study kindness and to study compassion? Uh, and that really began a pivot and it was a wake up call. And I think that um, in terms of, for me, the most noticeable sorts of changes over the years is that now I can say with completely unequivocally, that this is really the purpose of my life. I am on the planet now to do this work. And it has given me another thing I think that has changed is is the confidence that I have uh, in the importance of this work. And it's, you know, I don't want to sound arrogant about this confidence. It's a quiet kind of confidence. It's a kind of conviction that this is something that the world really needs. And I don't have the answers in terms of telling people how it can be done. I think it's very likely to be different for different kinds of people. I often tell people, you know what the very best form of meditation is that you can do? The best form of meditation that you can possibly do is the form of meditation that you actually do. And so we there's so many things we don't know. But the the one thing that I feel like I do know and that I can go to the mat with even the most skeptical scientists is that well-being can actually be nurtured. Yeah, uh, nice. The details are still, you know, there's a lot that we need to learn. But the fact that we can actually promote human flourishing. To me, is beyond the shadow of a doubt at this point in time. And I think most people would agree that the trajectory that the world is on right now is not a particularly healthy one. And I think this pandemic is an opportunity to stop doing what we've been doing and recalibrate. And I believe that this work now is more important than it's ever been.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I have a follow-up question.
1: Where do you see? the science taking
0: us next. One of the things I've been intrigued about is that, you know, if you think about science in the traditional sense, it is meant to like open new vistas and frontiers and human knowledge. And this science uh, that we are pursuing today on meditation is actually taking something that has been pursued for thousands of years and illuminating a scientific sort of rigor, you know, and lens the, you know, the, the power of a practice that, you know, Communities who have been pursuing it have, have known for a long time. So is the science merely going to be sort of a validator, or you're also seeing ways in which the science is providing some, you know, practice, some tool, or some insight back to those truth seekers who can now benefit from this more scientific advancement, you know, of, the, of their discipline?
1: Uh, I, I see the, it's a great question. Thank you so much for it. And I see multiple streams in the science there. There is basic science uh, and there also is more translational science, which uh, the latter, which is addressing more practical issues. On the basic science side, uh, I think that there are many really deeply important questions that are being addressed, for example, um, what exactly is the relationship between the mind and brain and the body in in specific contexts and so for example we know that one of the powerful impacts of certain kinds of meditation is to decrease inflammation in the body and inflammation plays a major role in many chronic illnesses uh, including in the dementias and so unpacking and really better understanding how these are connected is a major area of scientific inquiry today, and there are new methods to begin to look at this, uh, and so there are going to be some very exciting developments. On. Um, really pushing things, uh, uh, there is the science around the dying process, which is, I think, going to be really important over the next 10 years. Uh, the conventional Western understanding of death as being a, a kind of binary process, and when you stop breathing and the heart stops beating, you're dead. I, there's more and more evidence to suggest that that simple-minded notion is just not true. And being able to probe the actual process in a much more granular way of what occurs uh, is going to be, I think, extremely revealing and important. And of course, the contemplative traditions have their own um, beliefs about the dying process. And it will be very interesting to juxtapose some of those beliefs with the scientific evidence as it begins to emerge. And then on the translational side, there are some very practical questions. I'll give you an example. Let's say a person decides that she or he will allocate 15 minutes a day to practice meditation. Say they're a beginner and they wanna start practicing. Is it better? For them to practice in one single 15 minute period, in three five minute periods, in five three minute periods, sprinkled throughout the day? That question has not even been asked in the scientific literature. So we do not have an answer to that. My conjecture is it probably differs for different kinds of people, but that's something that we can empirically study that may be of great value in helping people to launch a practice. A related question is, and this is something we're doing with our app, you can practice in a formal meditation, but you can also do more active practices. You can practice while you're engaged in activities of daily living. You can practice while you're walking, while you're commuting, while you're doing physical exercise, while you're cleaning your house. Uh, And we don't know to what extent practices while you're engaged in those kinds of activities of daily living produce effects which are comparable to more formal meditation? And this is a simple, but yet practically very important question that we are going to be able to address through the app as the app uh, is used by more and more people, uh, we'll be able to collect these kinds of data, which will be of great interest, and I think be helpful to people.
0: Wonderful. Um, I think this seems like a very promising and in some ways boundless, you know, uh set of possibilities about where the science can continue to advance. I, I was particularly intrigued by, you know, that part about the study of the process of dying. You know, I've been um, in touch recently with, uh, I don't know if you know of uh, Dr. Kenneth Ring and, you know, the whole work around NDEs, you know, near-death experiences. Uh, it's, it's a topic of deep interest to me, to me as well. And, you uh, know, it's, it's a powerful, you know, arena, I think, through which to understand, you know, human, human consciousness. so I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that, that among all of these other very promising directions that you and the community are taking, I want to be mindful of time. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you to help us through like a yeah, little guided meditation as in perhaps final gifts to us, you know, before we go. There's also a really, you know, powerful question that just came up. You know, can you give us an example of how like well-being practices can actually help people evolve? deeply ingrained beliefs. I thought, especially with what is going on in the world right now, there is such a critical need for people to be open to revising and revisiting some of these ingrained beliefs. Uh, Vishy, I I don't know if you think you have a moment, maybe just to give some insight on that.
1: Yes. With regard to that question, uh, first, I really appreciate uh, being asked that question since it is so important, particularly for our world today, and the looking at our four pillars of well-being the third pillar which i described insight is really i think the most relevant to that question where we can begin to in a very direct contemplative way examine what actually is a belief and how do we hold a belief and when we begin to critically examine that process in our mind, it can really help to decrease the uh, grip, if you will, of an ingrained belief, and we can begin to see it more like other thoughts uh, and have less uh, kind of emotional attachment to it
0: thank you so much thank you so much richie um i'm reminded of you know some words uh by mother Teresa. she once said you know you cannot you cannot give what you do not have and in your case you've given us a lot and i know you've given that to us because because you have it (laughs) you know you have it in you so uh we're sending you our best wishes and godspeed in your journey in both life and in your work thank you for all you're doing to bring such a powerful new light
1: into science and into our world. Very grateful. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care.